name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to this edition of Talking Bat. An amazing guest this time round, Dr. David Hill of the Wildlife Research Centre at Kyoto University in Japan. And David, you're not talking from Japan at the moment, I guess. I reckon you're somewhere down in the south of England. Is that right? That's right. Yes, I'm talking to you from uh, northwest Devon. Um, I haven't lived in Japan for some time now, but I'm still affiliated to the Wildlife Research Centre um, of Kyoto University. Uh, brilliant, brilliant stuff. And we're going to talk a lot about that over the, over the next wee while. But uh, are you looking forward to this interview? I mean, what are you thinking about this? You th- did you wake up this morning thinking, this is going to be really good? Or did you wake up this morning thinking, why did I ever agree to do this? <laughs> I woke up. I'm hoping that it's going to be really good and hoping that I don't um, mess things up, I suppose, which I, I know it's just uh, pre pre any kind of presentation nerves. I know this isn't a presentation. It's a talk. It's a it's, an, it's a conversation. But still, you know, I get the same kind of nerves anyway. I yeah, always I, have done. Yeah, and I, and I, I totally get that. Uh, and it's probably something that... Uh, people in your position and some people might say from me as well on the basis that people would imagine that I'm accustomed to being on my feet in front of audiences. I think sometimes people sit in these audiences and they would look at somebody like you and they would think that guy would never get nervous about doing a presentation, but, <coughs> but, but it's, it's, it's human, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Every single time. It doesn't matter if I'm talking to a back group or an international conference. I get I get um, nervous beforehand, and it's always happened. Uh, Fifteen years of, as a lecturer, and still it, it happens. So, yeah. I it's it's always going to be like that. Yeah, yeah. I I totally get it, and I, I go through that. And I don't know about you, but I find I find that the I'm able to deal with it right up until maybe. 90 seconds before <laughs> and then and I have that kind of 90 seconds maybe two three minute period uh, just before I've started and maybe just after I've started and then somehow you've just got to throw a switch in your brain and just say this is going to be okay this is going to be okay yeah did you, did you go through something similar to that yourself yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well this is definitely going to be okay David Tr- trust me and and I don't know if I'm sorry to say, but I'm proud to say that the first time I ever saw you deliver a presentation was at the Social Calls of Bats conference that myself, Keith and Andy arranged in London in 2016, uh, from memory. And there's a picture here of you doing that. And you came back again and you did a one, maybe two presentations, I can't remember, at the the conference we held in Edinburgh. And I just want to thank you very much for that and and your support at these events, which is really, really appreciated. Um, But what I want to do, because it's not for us to be talking about uh, us, it's to be talking about you. If you're listening to this, uh, everyone, and you're not sure who this guy is, 
<laughs> I suggest you go on to Google or start reading some books because, uh, yeah, he's been involved in some pretty important work that many of you as bat workers uh, would appreciate, I'm sure, once we learn more about uh, the background and things that David's been up to. But this is a summary here of, uh, I suppose, I suppose it's a summary of your career, David. Is this how it's all planned? I mean, if, if we go back to the University of Reading in whatever year that was, um, could have you envisaged or hoped for what followed on from that? No, no, it, it was never um, planned beyond the next step. So I always, um, I, I often had in mind what I wanted to do next, but um, the, the, the stage after that, I had no idea. So it really has um, sort of, developed as it went along um but happily for me there's nothing that i no decisions i made along the way that i would would change in retrospect um i've been very lucky in the way things have turned out so it's certainly an unusual um, career path um and no not one i planned from the beginning yeah yeah abs abs absolutely and we're going to talk about some of the stuff uh, as we go through the interview we're going to talk about uh, kyoto uh, university uh, work in particular, I would imagine, and and currently uh, you are a sp specially appointed professor at the Wildlife Research Centre in Kyoto University. What exactly does that involve, broadly speaking? Because, as you say, you no longer live in Japan. Um, you know, in normal times, would you be travelling to Japan on an annual basis? Oh, definitely not on an annual basis. Um, I have been back um, a couple of times to a symposium that they've had there. But really, the specially appointed professor thing is it's an affiliation. So I'm affiliated to Wildlife Research Centre. I get to use the facilities of Kyoto University, like the electronic library and um, access to the Web of Science and things like that. Um, I still have a Kyoto University email address that I use. And, um, and yeah, any publications I have have Wildlife Research Centre Kyoto University on them. Um, and sometimes I go over and uh, take part in these largely student symposiums that they have. Um, but I, I haven't, obviously, I haven't been for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So you're missing, are you missing not having been for a few years? Yes, I am. Yes, I do miss Japan. Um, and um, I'll be glad when I can go back. But I'm sure, like many people, I just don't feel comfortable with the idea of international travel at the, at the moment. It's, yeah. it's not to do with my personal safety. It just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't seem like a good thing to be doing at the moment. So I'll yeah. put it off until, you know, until it feels otherwise. Yeah, but Japan will definitely be one of the first places that I want to go when I feel comfortable about traveling again. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And this CICESP, I've, I've got to be honest, I, I I looked at that and I didn't know what that was. So I went away and I did some Googling and it's the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology, which obviously, well, I assume is all to do with apes. So we're talking bat, but what has your involvement been with primates because I seem to think, and again based on your uh, postdoctoral research on macaques, um, this this is what you were initially interested in before bats, is that correct? 
Yes, that's right. Yes. So my my PhD was on um, social relationships of, of adult male rhesus macaques. So I was motivated by um, an interest in basically in social behavior of animals and, and the groups that they form and how those groups stay together. Um, and in the case of macaques, like many mammals, um, the females stay in the group that they're born in. So within a group of, of macaques, all the females are matrilineally matrilineally related to each other, um, mothers, daughters, sisters, nieces, aunts, and so on. Um, but the males leave the group before they're sexually mature, and they go and join another group before they actually start mating. But among females, this kinship is really important for their social relationships. So the closest social relationships, time spent together, time spent grooming each other, supporting each other in, in um, aggressive situations, it's most frequent amongst the most close, the closest relatives. Um, but males don't have any relatives in the group, or, or they might have some young offspring, but they don't have adult relatives in the group on the whole but they're still clearly part of the group. So I was interested in what are the social relationships that underlie the cohesion of the males to the group, um, which sort of replace what kinship seems to be doing for, for females. And that's, that was the basis of my original research. Wow. Um, but that research was done in a, uh, you'll see a photo later, it was done um, on a, a, an island where the monkeys were in a provision colony so that it wasn't a natural um, uh, population of macaques it was actually in the Caribbean and they'd been brought over from India about 40 years previously okay. um, which meant that observation conditions were very good you could see them easily and you could find your animals when you needed to, to collect data on them but it meant they were fed and feeding creates um, quite tense situations in which there's quite a lot of aggression and it has a profound effect on social relationships it also affects the structure of the population because females give birth every year, nearly every infant lives. So you get these huge groups of very complex um, uh, families of females, and then you get the males. The males still transfer between groups on the whole, even though it's a very small island. But um, I was aware of this, so I thought for my postdoctoral research, I really wanted to study monkeys in the wild where they weren't fed and hadn't been fed. And it's very difficult to do that with rhesus macaques because in most parts of India and Pakistan and Afghanistan where they occur, either they're fed because they're temple monkeys yeah. or yeah. they raid crops. Um, and there's ve it's very hard to find a population which is living separately from humans. But Japanese macaques are very closely related and they have a very similar um, social structure. Um, and there was this population on an island called Yakushima in Japan that had never been fed, but which had been studied by Japanese primatologists. So they knew individuals and they knew um, their, for the females, they knew their um, kin relationship. So I was able to go and study a similar thing in a much smaller group of, of wild macaques in Yakushima. And that's what took me initially to Japan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. We're going to talk more about that shortly, but did you find anything in the second study, the study of the uh, animals on the island in Japan, did, 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 did you find that the relationships were different to what you'd found in the initial study? Did, did, did... Yes, yeah. Interestingly, I went, to, I went to study males again. That was my, my 
my goal. But actually, the study group I worked on only had four or five adult males, so it wasn't really enough to do a, to do statistical analyses. Um, so instead, I collected uh, data on all of the adults in the group, and I collected data on females too. And um, in female macaques that are living in these provisioned colonies, including places in Japan where the monkeys are fed, the females have this very strange thing in their dominance rank order. The, the females form a hierarchy. Uh, with dominant individuals and subordinate individuals and you can you can actually line them up and number them in terms of their relative rank to one another okay okay and what was found was females inherit their mother's rank so um all of a mother's daughters will rank below her and above all the females the mother ranks above but more interestingly than that amongst sisters the youngest daughter was the highest ranking and that was pretty reliable. So when a when a when a, a young female reached a certain age, she would she would rise in dominance above her sisters. So if you had four sisters, the oldest one would be the lowest ranking uh, of the sisters, and the youngest would be the highest ranking. And all of those sisters would rank above any females who ranked below their mother. This is a very interesting phenomenon, wow. and people came up with evolutionary explanations and all sorts of things. But when I went to Yakushima and studied the monkeys in the wild, that doesn't happen. You don't get it, um, that that reversal of, of rank among sisters. Sisters are ranked in relation to their age, pretty much. The oldest ones are dominant to the younger ones. And the reason, um, working with a, a Japanese researcher, the reason we, we concluded was because fights are much less off frequent. So the what happens in the provision situation is the mother perceives her youngest daughter to be in danger when there's competition over food. And so she will go and support her against her older sisters to protect okay. the youngest daughter. Okay. And the result of that is the youngest daughter becomes dominant. Okay. But in the wild, those situations, aggression over food is actually fairly rare. It's, it happens, you do see fights over food, but most of the time they're spread out, they're eat, eating individually, they don't fight over food. Okay. So there's not that reason for the mother to protect her younger daughter, and she doesn't, the younger daughter doesn't rise in rank. So you've got, a, you've got this phenomenon which had been identified in, in various groups of provision rhesus monkeys and various groups of provision Japanese monkeys, and it looked really strong. And as I said, people coming up with evolutionary explanations but actually, when you look in the wild, you don't find it. So, yes, it, it, we did find um, some things that we, we have found quite a lot of things that are different in the um, non-provisioned wild Japanese monkeys. Wow. Wow. That, that's just that's amazing. Amazing stuff. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining that quality club. Find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your case. Go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. I'm going to move on to uh, slightly later in your career when you got involved in the acoustic luring of bats and I think this is something how you would describe uh, at least yourself in part at the moment. Uh, recent research has involved applications of a custom bolt acoustic lure, the Sussex Autobat, that can greatly increase capture rates for bats 
and this enables researchers to survey and study forest bats more efficiently and systematically. Now, this, this, uh, this has been a huge part of uh, what you got into uh, beyond the primates. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Yeah, well, um, how it came about was that um, I was working in, um, I was a lecturer at the University of Sussex and um, I'd become interested in, in bats um, working on this same island in, in, in Japan, an island called Yakushima. I became interested in the bats there. And um, some Japanese colleagues came down and very kindly, um, I'd never met them, but they heard that I was there and I was interested in working on bats and they were interested in, in the island of Yakushima. So they came down and they showed me how to catch bats, basically. Um, and they also left equipment behind. Um, so I was able to carry on ca catching bats after they'd gone. But this was in the days before lures and most nights we'd catch one or two bats or none at all. It was quite common to catch nothing, to spend hours sitting next to a mist net or, or a couple of mist nets and catch nothing at all. Um, when I went, when I was at Sussex, I started work with Frank Greenaway and I'm sure many people listening to this will have heard of Frank Greenaway. Um, and he was working at, at a, a national nature reserve called Ebono Common in West Sussex. And um, I got to meet him and uh, I got to, to sort of join in with his work that he was doing at, at Ebono, all in his spare time. He was an, he, he, he's one of these fantastic amateurs. All of his bat work was, was done um, in his spare time, but he was extremely, is extremely knowledgeable um, about bats. And um, it, he was particularly interested in Ebono because there was a colony of um, Barbastels there. So he was focusing on the Barbastels. Um, but during his, the first few years of working there, he caught um, a Beckstein's bat and he, it wasn't known that Beckstein's bats were there, but he managed to do some radio tracking, catch another one and radio tag it and found that um, actually there was a big colony of Beckstein's bats there. They were really, um, you know, they, they, they were a prominent species at Ebono. But they're very difficult to catch. They uh, have quiet echolocation calls. They spend a lot of time in the canopy, foraging in the canopy. They don't use flyaways to the extent that a lot of other bats do. So you can do a lot of mist netting as he had. Um, oh, he, <coughs> he was very careful not to do too much mist netting because Father Stiles learned about mist nets. But he, he had been working in the wood for a couple of years before he even knew um, Becksteins were there. So um, we were faced with this problem that we wanted some method for being able to, to, to catch the bats when we wanted to radio track them. And also we realized to look for other places they may be where people hadn't realized they were, because at the time, I think there were only three known maternity colonies in the country and, um, and very, very few records. So um, while I was working with Frank, he had this idea of making um, a squeaker, basically a, a hardwired um, little device that made a single call sound and repeated it. When he switched it on, it just repeated that sound. And it was, it, it looked a little bit like a brown long-eared social call, but um, it wasn't specifically modeled on a brown long-eared social call, I don't think. And he just, when we were misnetting, he'd just walk around and, and every now and again, he'd switch it on. And I used to get really annoyed because I was, trying to monitor bat activity you know trying to hear if bats were coming in i get all excited because i heard a bat was coming in and it would turn out to be frank with his machine making yeah. noises yeah. anyway 
after a while it became clear that it bats were being attracted to it and we were catching more bats with it than without it okay and frank said to me what would be really good would be if we had a programmable device that could produce calls of various different kinds that resembled the social calls of lots of different species and there must be somebody at your university in the physics department or somewhere who's interested in ultrasound who'd be able to help us make this kind of device because frank could do the hardwired device but he yeah. he, he wasn't he, he wasn't um, up to making a programmable thing that you could put lots of calls into yeah and as it turned out, um, it wasn't somebody in the physics department, but an electrical technician in the School of Biological Sciences who was very um, interested and um, called Peter Reed. And he um, built the first prototype Autobat, which I think took four very short calls. Okay. And over time, with input from me and Frank, um, gradually developed it to do things, you know, to do things differently in the way that we wanted them to do. Um, to come up with the standard autobat. Um, so that was that was how it came to be uh, from something that I got annoyed with in the field <laughs> because it was distracting me to something that I've spent well, more than 20 years basically doing research with. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly become a major part of, of my life. Yeah, um, and, and it's, and it's uh, oh, I'm not going to say Krypton, but it's... Uh evolved into being something that's you know pretty much getting used as a reasonably standard piece of kit now by a yeah. lot of back researchers consultants uh, not just in the British Isles but around the world I mean had there had there ever been any sort of acoustic luring done anywhere around the world for bats before you guys came along with this were, were you there were you there uh, at the frontier of this? Um, we were at the frontier of it in terms of a specific device to do this that would produce calls of different species of bat. So what people had done before was they'd use something like a bird squeaker and sit in yeah. front of the net and, and use a bird squeaker, yeah. or they'd, they'd, they'd hang a bat in a bag on a net and, and hope it squealed because that would attract other bats. And, of course, John Russ had already done his work on um, pipistrel distress calls and how... Other bats were attracted to the pipistrelle distress calls, um, but that was actually using. I think that was using bats in a, a temporarily caged. That's right. Um, that's, that's, that's what I recall from reading this yeah, paper. Yeah. yeah, but he he also used playback, but he wasn't really using it to lure bats to catch. And most of his work was done fairly close to roosts, so he was looking at how bats responded near roosts. Um, and we wanted to be able to catch bats in the you know just in a wood go to a wood can you can you catch bats here and i think for that we were pretty much the first um partly because uh recording and playback equipment at that time was extremely expensive and heavy and not really suitable for field work so you could get something like the um avisoft ultrasound gate set up and link it to a computer um i'm not sure if that was available when we first produced the autobat but certainly shortly after but it cost a fortune and um, and it wasn't really feel friendly. It wasn't the sort of stuff you'd want to take out that might get rained on. Um, yeah. So, yes, uh, um, I think we were we were at the forefront. And in terms of it being widely used, I was just checking for a Japanese colleague and um, 
there are 24, at least 24 publications in scientific journals that um, have on work that's used the Autobat. Um, and about seven or eight of those are studies that specifically tested the Autobat to see how effective it was. I mean, obviously a few of those were, were my work, but um, various other people as well. And although there are other lures available and um, there have been uh, papers featuring other lures, there's not very many of them. Um, you know, it, it is, it's obviously a developing uh, field. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And just for the, you know, uninformed, is it possible today for somebody to go and buy a Sussex Autobat or is it like a, a closed audience, a closed group? Because No, no, it's not. Yeah. It, it, is, it is possible to buy them. I, this is actually why I was sending the list of papers to my Japanese colleague, because she wants mm -hmm. to persuade her university to let her buy one. So she has to demonstrate to them that it's been, uh, it's been useful for lots of people. Um, no, they are available. We, they, um, when we initially uh, had them, I was reluctant to sell them in this country, um, mainly because I, want, I thought they'd be better used in a systematic study. Um, and we did ultimately do that systematic study, which was the uh, survey rather, which was the Bechstein, National Bechstein's project. And I knew that if, if we sold lots in this country, um, people would, would be doing their own thing, um, you know, people, and there wouldn't be anything systematic about it. So initially, and also we, we weren't sure about, you know, just about the, the sort of implications of, of, um, of using lures and the potential for disturbance and so on. Um, but they've been, they've been sold for quite a while. Don't usually sell more than five or six, maybe 10 in a year. Um, because Peter's still making them, and he makes them in his, his garage, um, and I sell them basically. Um, but yes, they are available. They are available. Okay. It's no, a bit different cool. to this one, though. The one you've pictured is 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 a very old one. Yes, uh, that's one of the original <laughs> series, and the new one is about uh, half that size, maybe yeah. a bit smaller, and has a, an external battery. Um, but you now use a lithium battery, which will run it for three nights before you have to charge it again okay. and it takes 15 calls instead of this one i think this one only took um eight calls and just the new one uh, i mean I, I don't have one of these myself but i have i have seen them being used i seem to remember the one i saw used it had some sort of adaptation in front of the speaker it was like a, a fan sort of thing that went round that would make the sound i would imagine sound more natural to any Passing back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That again was something which Frank uh, Greenaway designed and and built. And actually, he and his son Oliver built all of them that I know of, okay. except that um, that uh, Peter Reed made a couple for me. But um, they they're not available um, because, as far as I know, Frank Frank. Well, I know Frank doesn't make them anymore. Okay. And they okay. they are they are useful. I still use them. But they're quite um, troublesome to make. So P Peter isn't keen on making them sort of to sell with the Autobat. And um, the jury's out really about how much they increase capture rates. Yeah. What, what yeah. it does is that the vein spins and then stops and then spins and then stops and it stops in a random position. And the two speakers are facing each other with the vein in between them. So what happens is the vein will deflect the sound 
And depending on what position it's stopped in, it will deflect the sound in different directions. So instead of having just playing the call in two directions in sort of a broad beam in two directions, it gets paid in various different directions, yes. Um, yes. which obviously is useful in a woodland habitat. Um, but an alternative is to have two of these speaker boxes because this has a, a speaker on the other side as well. Have two of these speaker boxes and place them at uh, perpendicular to one another, and yeah. then you you yeah. are spreading the call in four different directions. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. No, in interesting stuff. But I'm gonna gonna take you back. Okay. Here's a, here's a. <laughs> uh, I would imagine this is you as what uh, obviously teenager, maybe yeah. maybe. I don't know how old are you in this picture here. I mean, are I'm you... sixteen. I'm sixteen. You're sixteen. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, so this is you're probably still at school before university yeah. and all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, have you always been into natural history? What? What? No. Where did that interest no. come from? No. No, I haven't. No, no. I'm obviously I quite liked animals, <laughs> okay. but uh, and I was I was interested in specific things like you know you might see a beetle in the garden doing something or you might yeah. see a bird doing something and I was interested in those things but I was never a bird watcher or or a, an amateur botanist or anything like that. I really didn't have uh, a lot of natural history in my in my childhood. Um, I liked natural places, but it it didn't it didn't really come that way. So, um, so you, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so basically, when I did my A levels, I did biology, history, and uh, sorry, biology, geography, and English, which is quite an odd combination. Yeah. Um, and of those, uh, I I was most fascinated by biology, and the thing I was really interested in was animal behaviour. So that's why I went to Reading and studied psychology and zoology as a combined honours because that was that seemed to be the way to get to animal behaviour combined because you had animal behaviour was studied by psychologists and it's studied by zoologists yeah, um, and and I came in that route really rather than having had had the, a broad fascination with natural history which I, I know a lot of, of young people do yeah um, yeah yeah that, that, that's that's quite fascinating because when when I because I've, I've obviously talk to quite a few people and uh, and quite often when you ask them um the, the answer you almost anticipate always getting is from along the lines of from as long as I can remember I've been fascinated by birds or whales or whatever you know and it's almost like just being like a an, a whole of their life they've just been fascinated but but that's a little bit different for you. Is, is that is that what you find if you talk to, you know, other? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And people people often assume that you know that I had a, a came from that sort of background, yeah. um, but but I didn't. Um, and really, it was um, when I went to Yakushima, which the the second photo is me relaxing, uh, yeah. with a beer after following monkeys with in a beer and obviously without any shoes on which I'm assuming. well yes it's a Japanese house so yeah you don't yeah. wear shoes in the house yeah um and my kanji charts on the wall there those are here Japanese characters um okay. which my wife and I were, were were trying to learn at the time um and the thing was the difference in Yakushima was I was working in a, a natural forest uh, sorry with natural wild monkeys in a natural forest and um, I realized they spend a large portion of their day looking for and processing food. 
I mean, they have to. They spend yeah. a huge yeah. amount of time. So unlike these monkeys I've been watching on the island who spend a short, intensive feeding and loll about socializing all day, these monkeys spend most of their time looking for and processing food and a relatively short time of the day um, resting and, and grooming and uh, interacting with one another. Here you are in Japan. You've talked about the character sheets and I would imagine trying to at least learn some Japanese uh, you know, language, how to write in Japan, Japanese, understand. When, can you, what was the conversation between you and your wife uh, before, before you made the uh, final decision, we're going to Japan? Did that happen that way? Um, I'm assuming you were married before you went out there. Maybe not. I don't know. Do you want to just talk us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah we were married the same month that we went out there. Um, we got married just before we went. But we'd been together already for quite a while. Um, and my wife was a teacher of English as a foreign language. Um, and she'd done that. She'd been doing that in, in England uh, at various places. And while I was doing my PhD at Cambridge, she was working at the Bell School in, in Cambridge. And we both decided, really, that, um, that we wanted to go overseas. And we were both interested in Japan. And this uh, postdoctoral opportunity at Kyoto University came up. Um, but as a sort of insurance, um, I had also trained as a taken a short course, six week course to train as a teacher of English um, as a foreign language. And um, we'd also applied for jobs um, doing that to get us out to Japan in case this, you know, because I didn't know how likely I was to get the postdoctoral fellowship. And unfortunately, the decision on the postdoctoral fellowship was delayed and delayed. And in the end, we signed contracts to go and work um, for a British company at a school in, uh, in Tokyo. And um, then I got the fellowships. <laughs> so it was a very difficult situation because it was Anne's career. Um, and so we couldn't just, you know, drop them in it, having signed a contract saying we'd go out and work for them for two years. Um, and we weren't prepared to live separately because um, the place I was going to be working was in the far south of Japan. So we'd be, we'd be a very long way apart. And so luckily, uh, through the kindness of my host professor, uh, Junichiro Itani, um, managed to negotiate with the, uh, the, the, the government department that were providing the grant to let me put it off for two years. So I spent the first two years in Japan as a, a teacher of English as a foreign language um, which indeed my wife was doing too. Um, much better at it than I was, I'm sure, but uh, we, we were both doing that. And it, it turned out to be a great thing, a, re a real, um, really good start, because uh, the field site is a rural area. It's now a bit more, you get a few more foreigners going there because it's a World Heritage site. There's a few more, quite a bit more tourism, actually. But in those days, when we first went there, it was remote and rural and nobody spoke English. So um, apart from the other monkey researchers who all spoke English, but the, the, the local people didn't speak English at all. And so what, what we, we had been able to do in, in Tokyo was attend language school once, once a week, night school once a week and learn Japanese and, and take a few basic exams and so on. Um, so we had some experience of, of, uh, of communicating in Japanese before we went. And I think if we'd been dropped in it right from the start, it would have been very difficult to do the work 
and you know and try and integrate in in the in the local community as well um so basically we went down there i went first and um and started doing my my field work um and then Anne joined me about three months later um and she did some work in on the island teaching small classes of school kids and so on but she couldn't really get work there so after a year and a half she went and got a job in kyoto at the british council and so we were we were sort of living sep- working separately and then going you know sort of visiting each other for, for about another year um but yeah i mean it, it worked out really well because we'd had that uh, initial we weren't dropped in it right from the start we got a chance not just the language but also learning a little bit about japanese culture and what it's like to live in japan yeah. in a big city you know was a was a sort of gentler way of going about it than um going straight to yakushima which was deep countryside yeah having said that before Tokyo, one of the biggest cities in the world, the, the biggest place either of us had ever lived was Reading, where we were both <laughs> undergraduates. That was our biggest city ever. So right, it was okay. quite, quite a shock to the system in a way to be commuting on the, um, on the trains in the rush hour in, in uh, Tokyo. Um, and we, we really enjoyed it, but two years was enough. I mean, after two years, it was, it was definitely enough. And, and of course, back then, and okay, even doing that today, would be a pretty massive thing for anybody to do, okay? But, but, but back then, you know, the internet isn't what it is today. You didn't no. have stuff like Google and WhatsApp and Facebook and no. probably didn't have stuff like Skype and stuff like that. No, 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 no. no, no. no it, it, it just must have been. Yeah. There, there must have been days. Look, I know what it's like when I go to France. Right. And I can't, I can't speak particularly good French. <laughs> and, and there are days I just want to bang my head off a wall thinking, why can't I do the simplest of things? And, and that's not really any different to our culture. It's just purely just a language thing. Yeah. Uh, there, there must have been frustrations. There must have been times when you thought, this is like one step forward, two steps back. Yes, no? Um, yes, there were. Yes, I mean, there were times when it was difficult to get things done, particularly any sort of official process where you had to, you know, fill out forms or whatever. Um, it, it could be very frustrating because the Japanese have, you know, have very complex admin systems, they're very bureaucratic. And of course, it was all in Japanese. And although we did study Japanese, we didn't get to the level where we could read these forms. You know, we had to have help with things. Um and got and, and did much better than I did in, in learning reading and writing Japanese. Um, but you know, there are frustrations, but you you fairly soon learn ways around them, and there are great compensations. I mean, it's um, you know, it's a very interesting place to live, and um, I love the food, I love the place. So um, you know, it it is a different culture, and I think some people find it hard because you, you as a foreigner, you always are a foreigner. You never feel that you've been accepted into Japanese society. Yeah. But we, we never wanted, to, you know, we never felt we wanted to be accepted into Japanese society. But it, like you have Japanese friends and you might never visit their house because Japanese often don't visit each other's houses. They go and meet in a coffee shop or a bar or something. Yeah. Um, so it's a different kind of friendship. And provided you can, you know, you can... Um, accept that and get on with it then it's fine 
Um, and, you know, I, I really liked it. I think um, because we lived there twice, um, a, 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 and altogether about 10 or 11 years um, of both of us being there, by the end of it, Anne, you know, she was ready to come back. She didn't want to spend any more time there. Just not nothing specific against Japan. Just, you know, we've sort of done that and I want to be back in my own country now. Whereas I probably would have gone on, you know, living there um, for longer because I had the, you know, I had the field sites and the, the various other things going on. Um, but I had a really good run at it, so I can't, you know, I'm not complaining. Um, but, you know, these things get people down to different levels, I suppose. Um, yeah. Oh, fast, fascinating stuff. Now, some of the slides we've got coming up, we've already... Uh, talked about some of the stuff in uh, some detail, but uh, but here's here's a map of Japan, and I'm going on the basis that anybody listening to this would know where Japan is in terms of where it sits in the world. Um, but here we've got, uh, I think, most of Japan on this map here, and we've got Tokyo here, and we've got uh, Kyoto pretty much uh, in the middle here, but the island where you were studying the the macaques uh, down here somewhere. It's one of these That's islands. It, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's the it's the round one. So there's a it's round one to the left and a long thin one to the right. It's the round yeah. one is Yakushima, yeah. and it's like a mountainous plateau coming out of the sea. Um, okay. It's quite uh, it's quite a striking place. Uh, no active volcanoes on it, but there are um, hot springs and. Just to the north, it, on the bigger island of Kyushu, there, there is a very big active volcano, um, okay. which uh, opposite the city of Kagoshima. Which, when you when you take a ferry, um, which is what we always did when in the early days, and okay. um, you, you see this thing on the in on the horizon, smoking, belching smoke <laughs> into the into the atmosphere. It's quite quite striking, really. Um, Which for somebody from the British Isles, uh, again, uh, if, if you live in Japan, that's probably not a. Uh, no, you know, you kind of. But but if you're from if you're from this part of the world, you kind of look at that, and you're just supposed to be thinking, "Oh my world!" You know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you are going. If you live there, you are going to experience earthquakes. Um, it might just you know might be no da damage, but you'll feel feel the earth shake, and you'll you'll hear things rattle every now and again and uh, typhoons and you're very likely to see active volcanoes um if you travel around yeah so how long did the ferry take to get to to the island that you did the studies on was it was that quite a long ferry or that was yeah that was three hours i think uh it's okay. a, a real really long journey but in the latter stages uh, we always flew which was a half hour flight to Kagoshima, which isn't marked there, but is a sort of southern city on that, that island that you've got okay. your cursor on now. And then it would be a, a, an hour, an hour and a half flight back up to um, towards Kyoto Way. So, you know, it wasn't too bad once we were um, not not impoverished postdocs anymore and could afford to, <laughs> could afford to fly <laughs> instead of take ferries. There was actually a ferry from Osaka around to Kagoshima and then from Kagoshima to Yakushima. So you could get, you could take an overnight ferry and we, I did that a couple of times and okay. that really, really was an experience. Okay. Um, yeah. Quite, quite rough seas or fairly smooth crossing? Oh, I, I didn't have any particularly rough seas, but it's just being stuck on a boat um, with... They're sort of playing jingles a lot of the time, the sort of theme jingle of the ferry. 
yeah. uh, which was called Sunflower, and they had this little song with Sunflower, and it would, would repeat over and over. Right, and okay. <laughs> before before smoking was banned on public transport, so it'd be very smoky, um, hard to get away from. And rather than seats, there were places where you could lie down uh, or 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 sit cross-legged on a on a floor on the floor. Of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. So it yeah. was not the best way to spend um, eight or nine hours if you know if if you if you didn't have to. So I'm glad I did it once, but <laughs> no desire to rush back and do it again. Yeah, here's here's a selection of photographs she sent me, and uh, I'm I'm, go, I'm going to take the Mickey a little bit here. Um, down here at this restaurant shop shot, um, you're not looking very impressed at all. This is kind of like a go away. I'm eating. What are you doing, taking a photograph? <laughs> well, the, the, the person taking the photograph has just got up from the vacant chair there, um, right? Okay, next next to Dr. Matsumura, and I think that look is just because. Japanese people take photographs, you know, quite frequently. Okay. And I, I just felt, you know, that having a, <laughs> I wanted, just wanted to get on with my lunch. I didn't want my photograph taken. So I think that was the reason for that look. I wasn't really, I wasn't really in a, a bad mood or anything, but I just wasn't um, getting in the spirit of things, I suppose. Whereas Dr. Matsumura, who's on the left there, the lady, she is, okay. and Takahashi's just getting on with his, um, his food. Okay. So three three quite different responses to the fact <laughs> having <laughs> you've got a pose, you've got a frown, and you've got total um ignoring of it. As to what's going yeah. on around them. Yeah. 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 And and the, uh, the person here, it's the same person yeah. in the photograph? It is, yeah. yeah. And okay. the top the top photograph was us resting at the in a break at the International Mammological Conference in Sapporo. Okay. Um, that's Dr. Matsumura. And she is the Japanese colleague who, who with others, came down and taught me how to use mist nets and how to um, how to take bats out of them. Okay. And so she was quite instrumental in me getting started with the... I'd been using bat detectors for a long time. I'd been, you know, just walking around listening to bats and recording them. Yeah. But I hadn't actually caught bats until, um, until these people came down and, and gave me a hand. So, yeah, she's been a very important uh, person. Um, and she's... Very, very, very kind and um, and helpful. Okay. And uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Nice and and what, 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 what's her what's her specialism? Uh, is her specialism bats or is it? She did or, she did uh, work on um, on mother infant interactions in uh, greater horseshoe bats. And strangely, Japan has the same species of greater horseshoe bat that we do. Okay. Um, and also on something that's related to natural bat, similar to natural bat, but not actually natural bat. Um, but she's done bits of field work all over the place uh, and, um, yeah, been involved in, in a lot of the, the bat things going on in Japan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. And we've got some academic work. Um, we've, already, we've already talked uh, quite a bit about the Sussex uh, autolure. Um, I mean, for, for me personally, my, my first... Uh, engagement with this mentally if you like was the, the the paper that got published in the mammal review in 2005 and I, I remember seeing this very shortly after publication and reading it and I, I think to be fair and probably for the reasons that you said earlier I, I didn't really have a clue 
what this was about until I really read the, read the paper. But this, to my mind, and I might be wrong, but this was, this, if you like, was the, the academic world's introduction to what it was that yourself and Frank had been involved with. Is, is that correct? Um, yes, it is. Uh, yeah, that yeah. was the first um, the first paper on the on the autobahn. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we'd been using it for quite a while then, but and, you know, we knew it worked. And I, I remember having this conversation with Frank about why it, why is it necessary to do an experiment to show something works when we know it works? Yeah. And obviously, the uh, I mean, obvious to me because of my background, you, you need to d- to do an experiment for people to um, t- to demonstrate to people that it works to have a you know to be able to do statistics and show statistically that it's working um, is quite important. So um, I think that's been a sort of something that's uh, run through everything I do, including now, and I've, it's quite a while since I left academia. Now is that that I do. Try, tend to approach things and, and try to think about things in a systematic way and how you know how how it's possible to test things really um, to find out what works best not by you know just by um, cumulative experience which is, is valuable but it's not always right and um, you know so it, I, I think it is important to, to to test these things the downside is it takes a lot of time I think for that paper I did 16 nights of um of, of tests which was no hardship because i you know i i enjoyed doing it but it is 16 nights of your life doing this thing and not nothing else really um <sighs> so that's that's sort of the downside but the, the upside is it demonstrates that something works um you know and it, that was the first step but the i mean we were very lucky in a way because one of the first calls i made was um was the Becksteins back call, which is is what's used in this experiment in this paper, and that call has turned out to be useful not just for Becksteins bats but all over the world. And don't really know why, but that tends to be a very effective call. So, for example, um, Ian Davidson Watts, who you you know, yes, um, yes. and various other people listening to this might have heard of, now lives in New Zealand. And um, before he went there, we'd done quite a lot of work together, um, uh, commercial work, uh, consultancy work. Uh, when he went to New Zealand, he wanted to be able to catch the long-tailed bat and the short-tailed bat. There's only two, yeah. two species in New Zealand. And so, and he collected some social calls and I made calls for him for the autobat. So the autobat could pretend to be a long-tailed bat and a short-tailed bat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they work, but they don't work as well as the Beckstein's calls. <laughs> so he does use he does use those calls but he also uses the Beckstein's calls because it's good not to just do the same thing over again it's good good to mix things you know yeah. um and he finds that the Beckstein's call works really well for catching those two, two species which aren't even remotely related to yeah. Beckstein's bats so there must be something in that call which has a universal yeah. you know a universal and, and this is the this is the really long call that's got the that's right. broad bandwidth but it's got a very low uh, minimum frequency and it's like a it's like a very shallow squashed up s shape isn't yeah. it on a spectrogram yeah. uh, for those people that are wondering which call it is but but that is fascinating because I, I, you use the word lucky and and i think that I think lucky is the right word because 
if you just happened to have been using any other social call from any other bat, uh, a good number of these social calls, I think, have now been shown not to be that effective, you know, um, or as effective. And, you know, and it's, it's just really fascinating that that's, that's what he chose. I suppose you're studying Bechstein's bat, so it would be, you know, you would want to choose a social call from that species. Um, but yeah, imagine if you've been studying something else and you chose a social call that didn't have the same impact. Um, yeah. Really think about yeah. that a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> there are there are a lot of other calls that do work um, yeah. and some of them work for specific species and some of them work for a whole range of species. And yes, you're right. I mean, there are there are calls which don't, um, which haven't been effective. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where if something doesn't work very well, you don't try it anymore. And yeah. I think if some of these things probably vary seasonally apart from anything else. So it might be worth actually, you know, tr trying some of these calls that didn't work particularly well. And I do think that, it, I, I do feel that a mixture, you know, using a mixture of different stimuli during the, you know, during the night over time is likely to be more effective than just playing the same thing over and over again. Um, so, yeah, I think they, they probably all have their value. I mean, what would be great would be, uh, be, be to be able to work out their function more yeah. Uh, yeah. precisely. And that's, um, you know, that has, for the most part, that's yet to be done. Yeah, and because there is still so much, um, I think there's so much that we think we know, but it's it's such a difficult thing to actually, you know, especially because it's bats and studying bats in the natural environment, in darkness, um, trying to work out what all of this uh, social acoustics mean against the context in which it's done. You know, it's, it's, it's a massive, massive subject. And obviously, as you're aware, it's something I'm quite passionate about. And I, I, I just sometimes look at the stuff and I, 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 do, I do doubt myself that we are anywhere close to knowing anywhere close to what there is to know about it i mean is that how you would see that yourself um but at the yeah, beginning of yeah. a journey as opposed to the end of a journey and this just yes yeah yeah i think so and um i mean steph murphy when she did her phd on um on brown long-eared bats which she i supervised yeah. that was on that was specifically on social calls of, yes. of, of brown long-eared bats and she did do some interesting work for that some playback stuff which you could see um, was beginning to show things. Um, you know, you, you could see ways that it could be, you could vary things and you could, you could uh, in terms of which stimuli you were playing and look how, look at how radio tag bats uh, responded. Um, but it takes a lot of work. It's not something, it, it really isn't something you can do in your spare time, yeah. especially if your main job is bat stuff anyway, because it means that yeah. most of the season you're tied up with other things. Yeah. So I'd really love, I'd really love to do more of this, you know, and, and sort of build on um, the things that Steph was starting to see. And I think there'd, there'd be a good chance of working out um, some of these things, but I, just, I simply don't have, um, don't have the, uh, the the luxury of being able to spend the summers uh, doing that at the moment. Yeah. Um, 
against the backdrop, okay, against the backdrop of us, of us not really understanding what many of these calls truly mean, you know, diagnostically 100%. Um, what is your feeling about uh, automated lures of any complexion just being used now as, you know, it's just, I'm not going to say it's mainstream, but it's almost becoming like a mainstream part of a back consultancy, back workers kit. Um, now, obviously, the the various uh, bodies like uh, Nature Scotland, Natural England, etc., when they issue people with licences to use lures, they have uh, quite rightly, I think quite strict rules as to how often they can be used in the same place for how many nights and stuff like that. But did you have any perspective on that? Because you're you're sitting there with a foot in two camps, really. You know, you're you're the person that or one of the people that was at the forefront of what we're doing, but you've also got a consultancy side to you as well. Um what's your feelings on that generally? Um, well, I think, I mean, I think that there's very real potential for um, lures to cause disturbance if they're used um, without due care, really. Um, and we, but we don't know what the disturbance um, effect is because, again, because it hasn't been adequately studied. And it's something else that could be studied, um, but, but it hasn't been. Um, I think that I, when I came back from Japan, I was surprised to see that the the, the licensing of by Natural England anyway had changed, and that you automatically, if you get a, a license to use a heart trap or a, a mist net, you automatically get a license that allows you to use a, an acoustic lure with it as well. Yeah. And I don't really think that's right. I think there should be some um, requirement for training in the use of an acoustic lure before people can just go out and use it. Yeah. Because um, as as there has to be before they go and use a harp trap or a mist net, because um, you have to be aware of the fact that you've the, the, there's the potential to cause um, disturbance. Yeah. Having said that, I think if it's used, um, I don't have any bad feelings about my use of it in my work because I am conscious of the fact that it it would potentially disturb. I do try to play it um, away from roosts. I do vary the calls. I don't play loud calls a lot of the time um, because we've got some very noisy calls and some quieter calls. And I don't play it at full volume. Um, and I think the, the, the combination of things is that, uh, of those things, is that, um, you know, I don't think it's, it, I'm doing anything, anything harmful and that the the uh, advantages that are coming out are actually outweigh outweigh any um, you know short term effects, negative effects it might have on bats that hear it. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's just really really important to to get to get your perspective uh, on that. Yeah. Uh, we've got some pictures here of uh, bat related work. Um, I'm not sure what this is. I uh, don't think uh, this is this a, uh, what, what species of bat have you got here? I mean, you're holding it closer to the camera than yourself, so I'm trying to gauge size and stuff. Uh, That's a yellow-bellied sheath-tailed bat. 
Okay, thank goodness for that. I was I was slightly I was slightly afraid it was something that I was supposed to know and I just wasn't seeing properly. <laughs> no, in Australia, it's it was okay. it was caught in Australia in New South Wales. Um, okay. I was lucky enough to to make I've been lucky enough to make several trips there. Um, okay. And working with Brad Law, who um, works for the um, New South Wales Primary Industries as a forest ecologist. Okay. And um, he looks at other mammals as well, but he, he, he does surveys of bats in, in woodlands and looks at th- things like the effect of thinning and other forestry operations on the bats' use of the habitat. Okay. And um, I was able to sort of piggyback on that work and, and do testing of the lure at the same time, which was, was great, great fun. Um, the reason that this is striking is it's, um, it's a high-flying bat uh, you hear them because their their echolocations are actually audible. If you if you've got um, you know if your hearing is good enough in the, uh, the sort of higher frequencies about 15, 16 kilohertz, um, and um, they're they're very rarely caught because they 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 fly high. But um, we got one come into the heart trap um, as well as this is an embalonurid. Um, the sheath-tailed bats, so a completely different family from any of our bats. And we were also catching molossids, um, which are bats like um, Tadarida, the the free-tailed bat, which is in Europe, not here. Yeah, free-tailed bats. And these are, I think they're pouched bats or sheath-tailed bats. Um, Yeah, so it it was very exciting, great great opportunity for me. I mean, Australia is wonderful for for a bat worker because they've got 76 species or something crazy. Yeah, and yeah. you know you can travel down around different parts of the same country and find different bats. So um, yeah. you know, it's got a, got a lot for going for it. Sounds sounds great. Sounds great. <clears throat> but what about these other pictures? Anything you want to pull out from these other pictures? Uh, um, yeah, yeah. The other the other four are all more recent, and they're all of me in the the, the UK. Um, the the, the, the ones of, of me measuring bats that were taken at Slapton Lee where I run a, uh, a course on surveying bats in woodlands okay. and basically just demonstrating. It's, it, it does focus a lot on the use of lures, but I also talk about radio, radio tagging and, and, um, and I also talk about acoustic surveys and, and weigh up the pros and cons of acoustic versus capture. Um, and um, yeah, and, and demonstrate how um, you can take biometric measurements on the bats and and in the bottom right hand corner um showing how you tell the difference between a juvenile and an adult basically okay yeah yeah Yeah. looks good looks good and i noticed did you do the course in slapton lee last year or did that get cancelled i know it was last year last year it was cancelled this year it went ahead yeah so Um, yeah, it was, it was good. It went well. We only we had terrible weather, so we only had two nights of trapping, and the first night was completely rained off. We went out with bat detectors, and I thought, we're not even going to hear anything. But luckily, we sheltered in a bird hide, and it was a bird hide overlooking the sort of water marsh, um, uh, uh, sorry, reed bed and wood interface and there was loads of bat activity just in front of the hide so these people were able to hear lots of different species including horseshoe bats um on their on their bat detectors and some of them hadn't used bat detectors before 
And I think those who had, some of them had never heard horseshoe bats at all. So for such a dreadful night, it turned out to be quite successful. Then the following night, we were able to put some traps up. Only caught four bats, which was a bit disappointing for me. But again, luckily, it wasn't disappointing for them. <laughs> they, they, were, they were delighted to see uh, four bats and three species and, um, yeah, and, and have things demonstrated. But so, what... Uh, yeah. So Slap Slapton Lee in uh, 2022, got another course lined up for... Yes, yeah, year. there's a course in 2022. And um, yeah, I, there's a, a maximum of 12 students on it because um, it just gets a little bit logistically difficult with more than 12 um, yeah. from a health and safety perspective and, and simply from, you know, being able to show everybody um, the bats and, and so on. So so it's capped at 12. But yeah, there's... Yeah. Yeah, so if anybody's interested, do uh, do have a look and do come along. I'd love to see you. Okay, so outside of work, uh, David, I, I asked you a couple of days ago, um, what, what, what do you do when you're not doing bad stuff? Uh, or what are you interested in uh, other than natural history? And I think you were initially a bit, hmm, I don't really know what I'm interested in. But, but you came back with a few things, thankfully. Um, you came back with, uh, I think, you like a bit of cooking. Uh, you like to read, is it crime novels and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, yeah. But there were two things you came back with where I thought, yes, now we're talking. Uh, rock and roll and beer. Okay, <laughs> so, so, so let's talk a little bit about, say, the rock music, first of all. Uh, you said uh, that you, you quite liked rock music from the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. Give, give me some examples of bands you've seen or bands that you're into. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose it's like a lot of people, my, my tastes, um, they didn't exactly get stuck in my, my late teens and early 20s, but I still like all the stuff I liked then and, and, and it's some of the, the stuff I like the most. And it's, it's bands like Led Zeppelin, Cream, um, from the late 60s, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Um, Although I I I hated Jimi Hendrix when I first heard it because I was I was about ten or eleven and I thought it was a terrible noise. But yeah. um, you know, it's funny. I think that those things that you hear somehow somehow sink in, and and the fact that I'd heard them before actually made them more enjoyable. When I even though I didn't like them at the time, made them more enjoyable. Added something to the value somehow when I when I got into them and, and really start, started to like them. Um, I have seen Led Zeppelin. I did see Led Zeppelin at Nebworth. Um, wow. which was yeah it was it was a great experience but unfortunately the sound wasn't very good so we, okay. we couldn't really we couldn't really um appreciate it as i'd hoped but it was fantastic to have to have actually to have been so what, to what album would have that been i'm trying to remember what, what album was that what would have been the album out at that time can you remember maybe not because i think they i think they might have done presents by okay. uh, yeah okay. i think they might have done presents by then okay um yeah but uh no it was i mean it was it was good it was sort of impressive but um we were quite far away the people i was with weren't great led zeppelin fans really so um you know it wasn't quite the experience it might have been let's say um i saw you two while i was in japan at the osaka dome um but I also like small venues. So I, I, I like Dr. Feelgood. I like early Dr. Feelgood. And yeah. we were lucky enough to see Wilco Johnson um, after long after he left Dr. Feelgood. But he, he, he plays um, played a couple of clubs in, in Japan. 
Okay. And that was really um, that was really interesting to see um, okay. these sort of small venues. Also saw while I was in Tokyo, uh, we we went and saw New Order, and that was in a tiny um, basement club. It was really small, but it was after Blue Monday, so it was you know it's fairly uh, fairly on in their career. Yeah. Um, but they're not. I mean, those bands are not really my mainstream likes. I suppose it's more, it's more the basic rock um yeah. you know early rock uh, led zeppelin deep purple deep purple uh, yeah 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 I, I i never i've never seen zeppelin okay but my, my favorite zeppelin album has got to be physical graffiti okay i just loved the physical graffiti album um all right yeah so that was good i never saw deep purple but i've seen no. all of the original members of deep purple oh, and yeah. all of the bands that they went on to to be in so uh, White Snake, uh, Rainbow, Gillen. Uh, I mean, I've probably saw White Snake what three or four times. I saw Gillen twice. Uh, Rainbow only saw once. That was with Richie Blackmore, of course. Yeah. Um, and I think between those three bands, that pretty much covered the original Deep Purple lineup. Um, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was quite fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah. I would have loved to have seen you too. That that's a band I haven't seen that. I would think would have been pretty spectacular to have seen live. Yeah. 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 They were. Yes. Yeah. Now that way was a good concert. It, 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 I really enjoyed it. Yeah. 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 And do you still do you still go to concerts these days? I mean, no, 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 no. Not, not really. No. Okay. No. It does. I. I mean, I, I always. I'm not a particularly gregarious person, and so. <laughs> I always, I always sort of felt torn. I was, I, I loved the music and I, you know, and the, the feeling of being there and the big sound and everything. But I didn't much like being in 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 a, in a huge crowd. Okay. Um, so yeah, and and that sort of that that side of it's over taken over now. So I, I doubt if I would go to. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I've got school people who I was at school with who still go to Glastonbury and you know and. Right. Uh, um, and really enjoy it, but I don't. I don't really think I'd enjoy it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I still go to concerts. And oh, good. I obviously not in the last uh, eighteen months or last two years, but but it's quite interesting. I mean, I mean, I've seen I've seen ACDC what five times. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I'd love to five love times. to see them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the first time I saw them was the Back in Black album, which was the oh, first, right. That was the first album after yeah. uh, the original singer. Uh, was no longer with them and the last time I saw them was probably only what three years ago three four years oh, okay. ago mm-hmm. and and as I like I'm what late 50s now and it's just interesting you know I remember when I was a young kid in the audience you know looking at some of the older people uh, around about me thinking <laughs> why are they here they're too old to like this kind of music and and now I'm the old bloke in the audience surrounded by yeah. all these young kids looking at you going, but to, but to be fair, to be fair, when, when you go see people like ACDC and Bruce Springsteen, I saw Springsteen, I've only ever seen them, uh, him once, uh, that was only a few years ago. Uh, it is pretty amazing when you look at the demographic of the audience, you know, you've got everything from teenagers through to people in their 70s. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so beer. Okay. So, are you uh, a real guy? Um, so, 
are you are you blonde, amber, or dark when it comes to your your layer choices, or a, or a bit of a mix? Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a bit of a mix, and it varies. So I like I do like um, yeah I I I I, I, I would have any of those actually. Uh, for <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. um, but I I don't drink stout very often, um, okay. but I do I do enjoy it occasionally. Mainly, it's uh, bitter or, um, or or pale ale um, that I drink, but I have got into the the golden beers as well. But particularly nice in summer, um, I think. Uh, yeah, I like it all. It's what it boils down to. As long as it, as long as it's not too uh, long, as long as it's not too fizzy, and I don't really like experiment. You know, the experimental stuff with fruit put in and things like. Ah, that. I like, right. it, I like it to be. I like it to be malt. Yeah, hops. so you like the, you like the, 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 the authentic stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. The stuff because there's, yeah. even within that, there's so much variation. It's incredible yeah. to think that all of these things were made from, you know, these same basic ingredients, and yet you get yeah. such a huge range and richness yeah. of uh, of flavors. Yeah. Um, it's one thing I missed in Japan because they they have beer and beer is very popular, but it's all um, it's all versions of lager basically. Okay. Um, and I did drink it. I didn't give up drinking while I was in Japan. But, uh, <laughs> that would have been too extreme. But um, you know, and, and it is quite suited to the hot weather in the summer, uh, drinking drinking the cold lager. But I did miss having um, proper a proper pint um, no. of, of you know something that tasted um, more interesting, I suppose, than than, yeah. the, than the lagers. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I absolutely love I I love the, the I mean I'm like I'm, I love the paleo stuff and all the rest of it and like you know, we we've got we've got a place in France that we go to okay and a complete fluke but about six months ago from the house we go to uh, about a fifty minute walk from our house a gentleman opened up a real ale uh, retail. Uh, oh, a shop right. in yeah. the basement of his house, all right? And right. when you walk into the basement of his house, he's got three floor-to-ceiling uh, shelving units, and 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 there must be easily, you know, a hundred different brands uh, types of uh, ale for sale, and and I'm ashamed to say, uh, Dave, I'm not ashamed to say, I'm proud to say. But uh, <laughs> well, we just got back from France about what uh, last week actually. We got back from France on our last trip eight days ago, and we were there for about what five weeks. Oh. And I am terrified to think about how often I went down to that guy's house and how much money we spent <laughs> on all these different beers. Uh, but I just love it, you know, and I, and I don't drink a lot, okay, so I'm not somebody that drinks to get, you know, out of my head or whatever, but, but you know, every couple of nights I like to have a couple of beers, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what I like to do, you know, so, yeah, so I can, t- I can totally relate to what you're saying, um, <laughs> yeah, totally relate, yeah, loving it. Okay, okay. Um, so as part of today's uh, talking bat, um, we're going to do a charitable donation in your name, on your behalf. 
and you have asked us to make that donation to Vincent Wildlife Trust Sussex Bat Appeal, which coincidentally, Batability is also already involved with because, oh, right. okay. yeah, we've, we've put up uh, one of our uh, products, uh, membership to our Batability Club uh, site, which this interview's for, of course. Uh, we've put up a membership to Batability Club. We've donated that to the cause. So hopefully that's going to get the Sussex Bat Appeal another little bit of money as well. But separate to that, we will be making a donation of £100 to the Sussex Bat Appeal uh, this weekend. Uh, do you want to say anything about this at this stage? Um, it's, all, it's all to do with trying to buy a house for a greater horseshoe roost or something. Is that right? Have I... It is. It yeah. is, yes. Um, and uh, there's actually... a. I recommend people look at the video about it on the Vincent Wildlife Trust because there's a nice little video about five or six minutes and it's got uh, Tony Hudson, who's a, a local bat expert down there talking about it. But it's just incredible because um, Greater Horseshoe Bats used to have a distribution that stretched across the whole of the south of England. Um, but um, over the past 150 years has, has, has shrunk uh, until the, the, the um, distribution is largely concentrated in, in the southwest of England and um, southwest Wales. Um, but there is this colony that's been found in, in West Sussex. I don't know exactly where it is. I think they're probably keeping the, the exact location a secret. I don't know. But um, anyway, it's been discovered. It's not a large colony, but um, the building that it's in is, is derelict and they need to raise money to, um, to take, have the building, the site taken off the market um, to begin with, and then to actually do structural work on the building to, to make sure that it remains. And I think I, I looked at the video um, yesterday, actually, and I think Tony Hudson said it was 150 kilometers from the nearest other maternity colony. Wow. wow. That, that's known. I think it's important yeah. to add that's known. Yes. Because yeah. um, although, you know, greater horseshoes are, are, are not known, not found um, very much, well, hardly at all. Um, when I was, again, working with Frank Greenaway, we used to do swarming um, site studies at uh, a couple of railway tunnels in West Sussex, which are probably not far from, not too far from this. And uh, one of them, uh, Cocking Tunnel, um, one night I recorded a greater horseshoe uh, there, which absolutely blew my mind because I, I didn't think, they, <laughs> I thought they weren't supposed to be there. But no. every now and again, you would get them. And this was, this must have been 20 years ago now. So although they probably are um, happily starting to recolonize some of the areas where they were before, I don't think we can assume that they, they, they completely disappeared. Okay. Um, because it's possible that you know there were there were odd buildings where you had small um, isolated colonies, or it's possible the individual I recorded was a male who was looking for bats where there aren't any bats, any, you know, for colonies or places to mate where there aren't any anymore. Who knows? Um, but I think it's a really good cause, and it is it is good that the greater horseshoe population is coming back and appears to be at least appears to be expanding in their distribution. Fantastic news. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So well, thanks very much. I'm really pleased that, uh, that, that, that the money can be used in this way and that it will help this cause. No, absolutely. And thank you very much for, 
for giving us the time today uh, to talk about your your life, your career, your experiences, um, and so many other things that we've dipped into during this interview. It's been uh, it's been well for me. It's been fascinating because uh, I mean I've I've known you for a, a good few years. I've met you a few times. Uh, we've never sat down and had a conversation like this before, and it's uh, and it's just been really good to to find out more about you and your background and what makes you tick and all this kind of stuff. So uh, that's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, how do you feel it went? Uh, do you feel it's gone okay? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. No, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I've I've enjoyed it. Um, yeah. So thanks very much for giving me the opportunity. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's been good. So just to finish things off, I'm just going to say, uh, David, it has been an immense pleasure talking back with you. Uh, I've learned stuff uh, about you and about bats and about monkeys uh, <laughs> that I didn't that I didn't know <laughs> a couple of hours ago, and uh, it's just been fascinating. So thank you very much, and I just ask you to say goodbye to our audience, and we'll stop the recording there. Well, thank you too, and um, goodbye, everybody. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to betability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.